This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation is being edited. I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Earl Bloodworth as my guest today. Mr. Bloodworth is the current director for reentry, overseeing the Mayor's Initiative for Reentry Affairs for the city of Bridgeport. He was most recently the director of the Warren Kimbrough Reentry Project for the city of New Haven in an effort to provide support to incarcerated individuals returning to the greater New Haven community. I appreciate that Mr. Bloodworth has chosen to share his story with us here at Fluid Truth. The summer of my freshman year, I out of college at UConn, I come home and my homie that I was talking about that we had gone for the same job, he had gotten a job back home for the summer. He told me about it and put me on. So he told me about this program called LEAP, um, Leadership Education Athletics Partnership. It's the summer of my freshman year. So I just turned 18. I started college when I was 17. It was super immature but I thought I knew everything. And now I'm at this job where I got my own apartment. I'm living in the community of the of the kids that I work with and everything is going swimmingly. It's like the dopest summer ever. I have all of this freedom. I got money in my pocket and I'm like having a ball. And one of the things that we would do, and this was like the second, it was only like the second year of the program, but one of the things we would do, uh, some of the different, Counselors would get together for the camp. We'd go to movies, hang out. You know, we all got paid. We got money in our pockets. We don't got no real bills, no real responsibility. We ain't paying rent, none of that. So we go out to the movies, go to eat, just blowing money. And um, this one particular night, I'm with my then girlfriend and one of the uh, counselors who I got really close with, and his girlfriend, who's also a counselor for the program. Although I was 18, I did not have a driver's license but you had access to vehicle. So I always had access to a vehicle where they have a driver's license. So I got, I signed the, the van out so we can go where we were going. We came back, I gave them the keys to my apartment. They went upstairs to my apartment. I was bringing the keys back for the van, sign it back in. And I crossed the street from where we, you know, kept the keys in one of the apartments to the apartment building I was staying in, which happened to be an old folks home, which is kind of weird, but. And as I cross the street, you know, I see like three cop cars roll up. And, you know, the me that you see now is not the me that was then. So, you know, no facial hair. I had like an ODB, half braids, half out kind of hairstyles, um, all into my Wu-Tang. Three cop cars roll up on me. And cop gets out, says, stop, put your hands on your head. And I'm like, WTF, what? What's going on? Like, so, you know, I listen, obey the commands. They come over. They don't really ask me any questions as I recall, like, where you been? Where you coming from? None of that. They just come over and put the handcuffs on me, put me in the car. I'm like, now I'm really perturbed. I'm upset. And uh, they put me in the car and I'm like, looking just like, not knowing what the hell is going on. So I was like, you know, officer, officer, and I look at his name, which is the irony. It was a black officer whose name was Blackman. 
and come to find out, like years later, I, you know, I talked to my some of my family's member members about him. Um, apparently, he, he like had harassed my younger my younger. I'm the youngest. He had harassed like my older brothers when they were young, my age or teenagers or whatever. So he's been apparently doing this for a long time because my brother that's closest in age to me is like nine years older than me. So he's been doing this for a while. But anyway, so I'm in the car, I'm mouthing off, I'm not doing anything that I was ever told to do when you get stopped by the cops. I was like, so why are you guys stopping? What, what's the problem? What's going on? And um, I forget exactly what he said, but I was like, you know what? What you just said to me is completely irrelevant. Like why that, you know, I'm losing it now. I'm like, why that from in the car? I'm banging on the, with my shoulder, I'm banging on the, the grid. I knocked the baton out into the windshield or whatever. And, I'm like highly agitated, highly upset, not knowing what the hell's going on. And so this, I'm in that car for like 30, 45 minutes, which is crazy. So at that time, then my then girlfriend comes down because everybody's like wondering where the hell I'm at. And they come and see this whole scene. And she wows out, they call the paddy wagon. We all both end up getting arrested and being taken down to Union Ave in Haven, the police station. And so they take us down to jail. I'm like, I don't know what to do because my mother has no idea what's going on in my life at this time. Cause I, I really had it, you know, I'm 18, I'm feeling myself. I got my own apartment. I'm like, I don't gotta go home. I don't gotta do anything. I gotta listen to my man under her roof no more. I gotta do anything. I was like, I don't know who the hell is gonna call. It was like, there's no cell phones. Like, I don't, the only member I really know is my home phone number. It was like, ah, I can't call my mother and tell her in jail. Like, I, that won't go well. I don't know who to call myself. Long story short, um, I end up getting out because of my employer, um, who at the time, Leap was and is, was really affiliated with a lot of Yale people. And one of those people um, in that current time, the director was Henry Fernandez, a very dope individual. Actually ran for mayor um, for uh, the city of New Haven. And uh, so I get out and I'm thinking, okay, now I'm done. But then come to find out, I gotta go back to court. And my court dates were like in September, October when I had to go back to school. Now, mind you, I go to school at the University of Connecticut in stores. I have no driver's license, I have no access to vehicle, but I gotta get back to court multiple times. And so somehow, some way, I figured out, still haven't informed my mother of this whole situation. And I go to court multiple times and then they finally say, you know, they nolly it or throw it out and nolly my record. Now, when I was getting out of lockup, they told me I had gotten stopped because I fit the description of a burglar in the neighborhood. When I went to court, they said I was going to court because I was being charged with interfering in an investigation. I don't know how those two uh, reconcile at all. And I never got the description of the individual that was supposedly burglarized in the neighborhood. So, multiple pieces of information I, I never received. But in any event, that story has stuck with me forever. Cause you know, as I got older, I realized that that one night could have derailed my whole entire life. You know, from my behavior itself, I could have endangered myself. The, the worst case scenario is I could have died from wilding out and, and not, you know, composing myself. But the other part of that is that I might not have died physically, but my, life path could have been derailed because I could have been arrested, I could have lost my financial aid, being a first generation college student, not knowing all those ins and outs, like my whole life could have been over everything, over nothing. I never looked at it like in detail, like how I'm looking at it now, 
just thinking about all the different connections like that stop was racial profiling and i find myself what from 1993 to 2015 that's what 10 15 20 some odd years i'm working on a project that deals specifically with racial profiling. I never made that connection, actually. Or the fact that my homie who got me that job uh, out of college for that summer was also the person that was competing with for the job that I was then doing the whole, you know, community forum. This is a lot of connections, but um, yeah, that that whole experience could have derailed my whole entire life. And then I know like when you were talking about the reason why you're doing this and, and understanding the law, I mean, a lot of our community, the, the law is a completely different, It's, I mean, for everybody, but specifically for the Black community. The law is a completely different world. It's a completely different language. And you go in there many times, you're either non-represented or underrepresented because you got an overworked, you know. It actually makes me think about, I want to say my son was in high school and he was like with three other kids walking. They might've been trespassing on, on Yale. Uh, yell bowl and they you know he ended up having to go to court and I went to court with him and I explained it and I was like this is nonsense it's just kids walking through whatever whatever and the prosecutor ended up saying yeah you're right you know there's no reason I, this should have went to this level and they should have you know could have just got off with a warning and my son ended up being having no issues from that but that also could have derailed his entire career plans and going to college so he was with two other kids I know that for a fact that one of the other kids didn't have any type of representation from a parent or anything else. And I was just like, how we all so easily can get caught up in the system and our life could be on one path or one trajectory and then easily it's on a whole nother trajectory. I have not shared this story a lot with younger people and I find it hard to tell them to compose themselves, one, because I didn't do it myself, but I find it even more so looking back at all the stuff that we know about now because of technology and all the stories that have come out, that even if you do compose yourself and you do obey and you are compliant to the authority figure, you can still lose your life. Or at worst, you could be in some type of mental health crisis. Then what? Because a lot of folks, and myself included probably at that time, you know, we have a lot of trauma that we have not dealt with. Plain and simple. You know? So I was 18 when that happened. I started college when I was 17. And my father had died when I was 13. Going through all that and never getting any type of therapy, never talking it out with anybody, never, just never really dealing with it. So I remember in times in high school, I'll just be like authority figures, father figures. None of that meant anything to me. In hindsight, I can't say that I was intentionally or knowingly cognizant or appreciative of surviving that situation, honestly. I mean, to me, it was look, I guess at that time, for a period of time, I looked at it like a rap video, honestly. Like, you know, Popo pulled up on me or Jake pulled up on me, 5 pulled up on me, da da da. And I got through it whatever, not really understanding the magnitude or the gravity of the situation at the time. But with experience and age and doing what I do now and understanding, you know, the criminal justice system to some degree and the, you know, the school to prison pipeline and seeing individuals that I work with on the carousel constantly, I was like, you know, that easily could have been me.
or any one of my siblings or even like even in my household i'm the youngest and you know i've had a sibling or two that's done time for various things and like we grew up in the same household we just made different decisions and it you know that speaks to me that even though i wasn't in the streets and living the street life like that i still could have ended up in that same kind of lane as a sibling of mine that made different decisions then my perception of this individual is that he was the officer from Boys in the Hood. I mean, in that scene with with Cuba Gooding Jr. and uh, Lawrence Fishburne, the uh, the black officer, and I forget exactly why he had stopped or why he was messing with Cuba Gooding Jr. But he was messing with him to the point where he he was, you know, he had pulled a gun on him. He's like, "I'll take your life," and you know, your life is in my hands and my control. Just completely power tripping as opposed to looking at, you know, this is a young person, whether he did something or didn't do anything, you know, this is an opportunity for me to put him on a, a path and protect him, as opposed to lording over him and, you know, threatening his life or ruining his life. Because that's the other thing. It's like, in those situations, like I said, the worst case scenario is that you can die or you can be crippled in some fashion or, you know, your life could just be completely derailed you know, on some bullshit, you can get arrested and be held. And by the time you get out, because you couldn't post bail, you lost your employment, you lost your place to live. So all these different things, or, um, and I forget the young man's name, who ended up in Rikers Island for three years based on shoddy evidence that he supposedly stole a backpack and he ended up committing suicide. And that's just one of the stories that we are aware of. Unfortunately, that's not like the exception story. That's tons of stories like that we just don't know about. Now, my perception is a little bit more refined. To a certain degree, I still would see an officer like that as the officer of Boys and Hood, but understanding with a different lens that some officers, for some odd reason, really just adhere to the code that they're not black and that the only color is blue. It's not about white or black, it's about blue. I mean, I, I acknowledge it, I don't agree with it, but I, I, I see that is some officer's mentality where there are you know, other officers of color who black officers that go in thinking, I gotta do my part to get back to the community and try to you know quell some of this craziness that's going on between you know the abuse that's being you know administered upon my community. And I, I don't know how, I don't know if they get like that through their training or were they already like that or do they have some kind of deep self-hate? I, I don't know. So my father passed when I was 13. I think that shaped how I looked at things a lot and not necessarily in a good way. It's just, you know, even though I wasn't out there in the streets, I didn't think, you know, I would live past 25. Um, just based on the culture and neighborhood and the environment that we lived in, in here in New Haven, which also led me to believe that, you know, what's the point of doing all this planning and, uh, you know, preparation for growing up? Because one, if you are blessed to live to be 25, you can turn, the day you turn 26, you walk out and get hit by a bus. And that was just my thinking that, you know, my father just past. It's just kind of a nihilistic view, um, which has shaped a lot of decisions, just kind of like ride life to the wheels fall off. 
you know, um, because at any moment it could be taken away. So, I mean, I've got some different perspective on that. Also going to therapy, you know, so I understand that that's not necessarily the case. You know, some things you have control over, some things you just don't have control over. There are a lot of people out there with stories to tell. I know I've been uh, working with an individual who I've gotten quite close to. He's a little bit older than me. I met him while he was in prison. And um, when he came out of prison, he's been going, you know, 160 miles an hour trying to get back to the community and help people. You know, and mind you, you know, he did his time. He was in there for murder from Bridgeport, actually. And um, he has an he has an amazing story and he has a good narrative. He knows how to tell a story. But I say that to say everybody has a story. I was talking to one of his colleagues who I knew who I was impressed with when I saw him tell his story again in Bridgeport at uh, Mount Airy. I think when I was still at the uh, African-American Affairs Commission. And, you know, we're cool and we talk now and again, but since I've gotten in, working in the Bridgeport, we haven't had a chance to get up. And so we ended up having a conversation yesterday that went so crazy because the other dude that just got out that I know, I came to find out that he is mad close with somebody who I went to college with at UConn, who's from Bridgeport, who my wife and I are the godparents of. Making that connection with the other dude that I was talking to yesterday, I was like, yeah, you know, I was talking to so-and-so. And he's like, yeah, 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 he told me, da-da-da. We started getting into like history of things, the history of Bridgeport stuff I didn't know about and like who was gonna be the person who was almost the first black mayor of Bridgeport. Who I kind of found out was one of my fraternity brothers who since passed away. His name, his name is Tisdale. And so we got, he started talking about the history of, of Bridgeport and, you know, the historic nature of Bridgeport and the Black Panthers and that connection with New Haven and the Black Panthers. And the program that I ran when I was in New Haven was named after a former Black Panther, uh, which was Warren Kimbrough. And we started talking about the, the close ties of the Black Panther and a lot of history people don't know about. And then I told him, you know, you know, I lived in Bridgeport for a little while when I was younger, for like a year and a half when my parents split up. And I went to this, because um, he grew up in uh, Father Panic Village. And um, I was like, yeah, I grew up on, well, I didn't grow up. I, I lived uh, on Pembroke Street. And I went to this nursery school or day, day Head Start program. And I don't remember where it was, but it's like this big dome building. He's like, I went to that same program. And that's how we got into Black Panthers because they did a breakfast program like the Black Panthers. It was just so, the connections were so crazy. And he's like, he was born like, he had to be born like 67, 68, 69, somewhere around there. So he went to the same program and I was, you know, the story I always tell about going to that program, I was like, I remember specifically, like if you were good, you know, one of the highlights is you got chosen to go with one of the teachers or caretakers or whatever you want to call them across the street to the package store to get her nip, play her numbers and get her cigarettes. <laughs> he was like, yeah, that sounds about right. I was like, yeah, it was like, it was like, wow, it's the connection is so crazy life and the stories that we all have. I've known this guy for at least seven years now and we've never had that conversation. Hey, thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Michael Bachman, and executive producer, David DeRoche. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit QU 
www.edu slash podcast. You can listen to all of our podcasts on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. That address is QUPodcasts at QU.edu. On the next show, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Nimbim Watara, Associate Professor of History and International Studies at Brunel University in Gainesville, Georgia. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.